0: Well, Lord and Father, what a joy it is, what a privilege it is to be gathered together with your children, to declare your praises, to exalt you, to worship you, to think about categories that transcend our present, to think about forever, to think about something that has infinite worth, infinite value, and that is you. And so, Lord, we put you at the center this morning the center of all of this happening, whether in songs, whether in worship, in baptisms, proclamation of your word, Christ is at the center. So be exalted in and through us. As we open your word, O oh Lord, may you do a work in us that we would be yielded, submitted to you in ways that give you pleasure. May we say yes to you in every detail that you are speaking into our lives, whether confessing sin or doing things that you are leading us to do to actually accomplish great things for your namesake. And so, Lord, as we come out of a week of Thanksgiving, we don't stop. We don't hit the pause button. We do not end a vacation day. No, we continue on with gratitude. We continue on with declaring your praises. And so, Lord, help us to be able to trace your goodness, to trace the things that you're doing in our life and to acknowledge you and declare it as so before our friends, before our neighbors. And so, Lord, as the great giver you are, we give you all praise and all glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Hopefully you've had a great Thanksgiving, opportunity to reflect a little bit with family, with friends, and just identify what God's been doing, whether in the year, whether in the shorter season of a month, acknowledging God. What an amazing opportunity. We have a country that actually carves out time for us to actually reflect and be thankful. This morning, I want to start with a vivid, vivid picture. This is year 2000. Carol and I were home for a home assignment from the tropics of Asia and we happened to be in northern Michigan. It was a cold night, as I recall, probably one of the coldest I've ever been, 20 degrees below zero. It was between 11 and 12 o'clock, and Carol and I were out in the woods walking, and we hit this open area where we just saw all the stars. They were majestic. Oh, they were full of splendor from one horizon on the east to the west. As far as we could see in 360 around us, stars were all over with great vivid detail that I don't recall ever seeing before or since. Why? That one day I saw them with great detail. The scientists and astronomers tell us there's probably a hundred billion stars in our galaxy alone. How come I don't see them every day? God gave me a glimpse to actually experience the wonder, the beauty of his creation that in The in heavens. If that doesn't stretch you enough, astronomers even tell us there's two trillion galaxies just like ours. So if you use the Milky Way as a sample. You take the number of stars in our Milky Way, you multiply it by two trillion you come up with something they talk about 10 quadrillion that's 10 with 24 zeros behind that's how many stars are filled the universe we don't see those they're extrapolating and give or take a hundred million give or take a hundred billion but all that to say there's much more out there than what we see with our vivid eye that's where we've been at in the book of hebrews in particular chapter 11 we've been looking at the ancients who were commended for their faith. Men and women who, some are named and some are nameless, but they died hanging on to promises. Why? They were seeking the pleasure of God. They followed hard after God. When God led them to do things that sounded ridiculous or crazy, build a boat. Noah built a boat. When God told Abraham, leave your country, leave Ur er, and go to a place I'm leading, where's that you're going to lead me to? He wasn't sure. He just finally obeyed. When God tested him on sacrificing his son, he said, yes. The, their obedience there are examples to us. Examples of following hard after something we don't see. We've heard, we've experienced, we know in part, but not in full. We've been looking and memorizing Hebrews 1. Talks about confidence, confidence in what we hope for, assurance of what we do not see. There's a couple other verses that we've been memorizing 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. And that's where we're going to focus this morning. Let me just read the verses for you. Just by way of reminder, I may be reading out of the New International Version, so I may have a little slight little uh, different take than what you've been memorizing in the ESV. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are renewed day by day. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us the eternal glory that far awaits them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. This morning, I want to unpack these verses where Paul contrasts various aspects of life with three categories or three angles of faith. Faith that is buoyant, faith that's resilient, and lastly, faith that is robust. Let's start with Paul's first statement where he talks about, therefore, we do not lose heart in verse 16 of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians. He does not lose heart. Why would Paul be so audacious? Why would he be so strong? Why would he... What's his centering piece that allows him to say such strong words? We do not lose heart. In fact, he's already mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 4, he's already said uh, in verse 4, so it's kind of he's bookending this in chapter 4. At the end, verse 16, we do not lose heart. But in verse 1, he says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Therefore, in chapter 16, therefore, we do not lose heart. It forces us to look back. And so my first point is, buoyant faith, faith focuses on what God has said as a reality. We focus on his words. His words are reality. So as we focus back, what has Paul uh, experienced? What has Paul written in the previous verses that are his buoyancy, that keep his faith from crashing or capsizing? It starts off in chapter 2, verse 14. It says that Christ leads us in a procession. It's a procession. It's a big parade. It's not the Thanksgiving Detroit parade where you got these big floats. Oh, no. It's Jesus is at the front of the parade and everybody is acknowledging He is Lord. He is King. Behind Him is uh, His followers and their people that He has redeemed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. He's brought them forgiveness and deliverance. They're in the parade. And it says Christ is leading us in triumphal possession. That's why we don't lose heart. Christ is with us. He's leading us. He hasn't abandoned us. In chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, there's another reason why we have this buoyant faith to trust in His words and we don't become downhearted. We don't lose faith. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we have confidence in ourselves. Oh, no, to claim anything for ourselves but our competence comes from God. Imagine that, confidence and competence. It's not in our, of ourselves, no matter how smart you may be, whatever you bring to the table, this kind of confidence and competence comes from God. That's why we don't lose heart, because we have a source that is making us sufficient for the task. What is that task? To be ministers of the new covenant. He's made us competent for this calling. He's given us great confidence so we don't lose heart. In chapter 3, verse 12, it says that he, Christ, makes us very bold. Not just okay for the task. He makes us very bold for the task before us. Through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Why would we lose heart with Christ leading us, giving us great competency and confidence, making us bold for the task? Not only that, one last thing it says in chapter four, verse six: God makes His light shine in our very hearts. The picture is, oh, we're fragile; it's a clay pot. That's our our lives are like clay pots, and God takes His glory, His presence, and puts it inside these clay vessels. And that's where He says He makes His light shine in through us, that we reflect Him. And so that's why Paul says, do not lose heart. We have so much going for us. All that Christ is doing, He's leading us, He's with us, He's making us confident and competent. We don't have boldness that we generate and crank up from ourselves. No, it comes from Him to reflect Him. Yes, we're bold, we're courageous, it's from Christ. But Christ gives us this boldness because we face enigmas, we face challenges that sometimes just are perplexing. They're harsh, even sometimes they're paradoxes. And my idea of a paradox is two things that are seemingly both true, and yet we can't resolve it. They're both true, but they're they're in conflict, they're in tension. And for those that start with themselves as a reference point, they stay stuck. Whether in their workplace, you got challenging people, uh, peers, it could be a boss who seems so oppressive. Maybe there's something, things happening, you're not being treated rightly or you're being treated unjustly. Maybe in your marriage, you're finding yourself in this conundrum, it just seems like, I just cannot find a way to get out. and You're stuck in this paradox. People who have their centering as themselves, they're autonomous, or they look to the world for answers, how to solve this paradox. They tend to stay stuck, and there's also fatalism without any resolution. If Einstein gives us a good example, and I'm not putting Einstein out as a follower of Christ. He probably was a God-fearing man, I suspect. But he's a man who's very intelligent, and as he's talking about quantum me- mechanics theory... It's theory and wrestling with how does these equations fit in with practical everyday life. And he came up with a concept. Instead of just saying, giving up and saying, well, they're in conflict, he said there must be hidden variables. Hidden variables, things that he cannot see, things that he cannot, at this point in time, he could not figure out. But it kept him pushing in, going deeper, trying to find resolution, things that he could not see and trying to find answers through those hidden variables. As we think about those hidden variables, paradoxes that seek God's solutions discover Him and His glory. So if you're stuck in a paradox, bring God into the situation Seek solutions that he would provide. What are some areas that are hidden variables or God's unseen ways of actually bringing resolution to something that's very perplexing, something that's very challenging for you? It's a beginning point that there's very little that I can control. We come to that place where we see ourselves that I am not infinite. I do not have control. In fact, there's very few things I can control. And yet we lay hold of a promise also it says, with God all things are possible. So we see ourselves in a very real way. We see God for all his fullness. It puts us in a situation of finding solutions to paradoxes. Our faith becomes more resilient as we grasp. Here's my second point. We have a resilient faith that grasps God's unseen ways for living in the present. If we just focus on the empirical, the things we can touch, the things that we see, it might not be enough. Probably not. There's other realities, and so God is encouraging us to look for solutions in and through Him and His ways. So when you bump into paradoxes, don't see them as a problem that frustrate you and Alienate you from God and say, I can't reconcile this. Allow paradoxes to press us into God and pursue Him in a deeper way, saying, Lord, how do I put these things together? What are your solutions? What are the hidden variables that I'm not seeing? What are your ways, Lord? Through Christ, paradoxes and contradictions that we face in our personal life can be resolved. Using His unseen ways that transcends time, that are not limited to a space, but actually transcend space, and also have infinite power. So suddenly we bring God into our situation, our experience, suddenly we have a different perspective that's bigger than our problem, bigger than our paradox. It may be a different aspect of how things are working and how they're designed. A good example of this kind of resilient faith that pursues God's ways in the midst of paradoxes was a friend of mine Uh, in Asia. We were working with a very resistant people group, and this particular person, his name was Ali, he did not know any other believers from his tribe who had ever come to faith in Jesus. Didn't know a single one. For two years we studied God's word together and he did comparisons with the Quran and uh, the Bible and for two years he wrestled with very strong and debating against the Bible. And after two years he came to faith. He experienced God's freedom. He experienced God's deliverance. Oh, the presence of God's spirit in him was something that's undeniable. He enjoyed it. While he enjoyed it, many of his friends didn't like him becoming a follower of Jesus. So they set in motion a scheme to make him the fall person for a high profile murder in that country. Ali would go to jail for seven years, more than seven. In that space he had his cellmates were oftentimes terrorists who chided him, beat him, ridiculed him for being a follower of Jesus. They did not like what he stood for but his faith stood strong because he knew he was free. He knew he was delivered. The things that were unseen he held on to. The Holy Spirit that he could not grasp in his hands was real. It gave him peace and confidence to face whatever. And I remember the day that his wife lost hope. He's never going to get out of jail. And she left him. His face was very sad. Had a little grin on his face. He says, God is good. God is good. He brought God into the equation of his life as harsh as it was, losing much his freedom, losing his wife, losing his family, and yet God was real to him in the midst of a harsh, harsh conflict. Paul's going to present five paradoxes in these short verses here in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, the last two verses of. The chapter. He's got five paradoxes, and what Paul does in these paradoxes, he takes us from what we do know to help us grow to understand something we do not know, the unknown. And so we're going to walk through these five paragra- paradoxes, and they're contrasts, but the contrasts that help us grow in our understanding, grow in our faith, become more resilient. And so the first paradox we see in chapter 4 verse 16 of 2 Corinthians is that there's this outward side of us that's wasting away there's this outward aspect that we focus on it's our identity it's our appearance It's what we look like it's we look in the mirror we see ourselves and sometimes we like what we see sometimes we don't but we're it's this outward person and then Paul makes a contrast. But there's this inward person too. While this outward person is wasting away, there's this inward dynamic going on. And it's not duplicitic two parts. It's all one whole. We focus on the outward, what we see, but the, in part, in the inner part oftentimes just kind of push off into a gray zone or a subcategory, if, if you will. And Paul pulls it together and says, oh, no. There's this outward part that we focus on, but there's also an inward aspect our inner person. It gives us another category, how we groom, how we take care of, how we develop this inner being of our soul. Our outward appearance, our outward ideas are oftentimes focused with dealing with who we are, has pride attached to it, It has facets to it that we want to control. We have our our outer being. We want to control the things that we can see. And when we don't, we get frustrated. The bookend, at at the end of verse 18, he opens another category that's very close to this outward. It's the scene. He says, fix your eyes on the things that are not seen but unseen. And there's another contrast. The seen, that visible aspect, the thing that we can touch, the things that we can validate with our experience. And then he talks about the unseen, this hidden world, these hidden variables that are hidden aspects, hidden realities that we don't know about. The unseen. Where's this unseen? It seems mystical. and That's where God's word is so important. It gives us handholds. It gives us guidance. What is this space, this realm that we do not see and yet is real? And people of faith walk in this space of yes, we we know the outward, we also focus on the inward. We have this part that we see and touch and we validate with everyday experience and then there's this unseen reality that we know in part, but by faith, we hold on to it. It's real. And so I want to continue on with this vein of resilient faith grasps God's unseen ways for living in the present. Our third paradox that Paul presents, this outward being that we talk about is wasting away, it's decaying. It's fading. We don't like that. Whether you're 30, whether you're 60, 80, things just aren't the way they used to. There's wrinkles. There's Things are sagging. Got the creaks in the body. And, and we're fading. In fact, science, newest, the latest science over the last four or five years even talk about a baby who is newly conceived. Oh, yeah, there's cellular... Uh, physiology is growing and developing, but there's also cells that they've received from the parents that are also dying simultaneously. So this de- decaying process actually starts at the moment of conception. Oh yeah, it's growing and developing, but it's out of clock, it's timing out. We are wasting away. It's an area that we don't like focusing on, wasting away. But Paul, Paul gives us another category. Whether you're a youth High school, college, you feel like, "Ah, what's he talking about? Aging, getting old, you feel like "Ah, everything's going great. Paul gives us another category, though. It's a rich category. The idea that, oh, while we're wasting away, there's this renewal that's happening inside of us. There's something that while we're wasting, we're dying, there's also another aspect where we're being renewed. Not just once in a while, it says day by day being renewed. In a similar way that that our cells are being renewed, regenerated, there's spiritually something going on where we are being renewed every day by God's Spirit. These are things we take by faith. If we doubt it, it's not a resilient faith. But like the ancients who walk by faith, whether they heard God regularly or there'd be segments of multiple decades where they did not hear from God's voice, they did not have scriptures, and yet they followed wholeheartedly after God. What he said was true. They knew the unseen and they knew the seen and they focused on the unseen, all the promises. They died while waiting for those promises. Paul gives a counterbalance in this aspect. We're looking at uh, these balances or these two truths that seem so opposing. He talks about this wasting away. The corollary there is affliction. We're wasting away. We have affliction. We have trouble. And yet, Paul says those are very light. You're going, Paul. Really? Are you treating my problems, whether it's cancer, whether it's going through a a, a hard, challenging marriage? I got parenting issues. I, I just carrying, or my my children are just not following Jesus. They seem to be rebellious, and you're wrestling with how how do I resolve these issues? And Paul says they are very light. When Paul says they are very light, he's not treating your paradoxes, your challenges as something trite. Oh, no, not at all. Paul's got full faculties of, awareing, of awareness there are challenges. He has another set of paradoxes I want to read. It's just in the previous verses here of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, but verse 8. This is where it's not trite. He, when he's talking about these challenges and paradoxes, oh, he knows they can be harsh. He knows they can be difficult. He says in verse 8, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. He says, oh, those are very light in comparison. Why? They're just momentary. In terms of time, these things happen for a short time period, but in eternity... They're insignificant. In fact, they're creating something much more significant. The comparison to our pain, our challenges, our difficulties, our conundrums. The trade-off that Paul talks about—why it's so light—the exchanges. Another day is God's glory, His eternal glory. Glory is not like the, the the actual. Meaning of glory is something not just with light and bright, but it's heaviness. It pushes down, it fills and displaces anything that's challenging its authority. And so God's glory presses down with great weight and much weightier significance than anything that we go through in this earth. This is operating with the perspective of God, seeing things from his perspective, seeing things with his values, seeing things with his purpose. We get this from Scripture. So it's not just God has left us in a place of unknowable hidden variables. Oh, no, he's given us and told us what is going on in this realm that is unseen. He's taking us in a place where we live in time. He's taking us to give us a category outside of time, something bigger that stretches our our minds, eternity. How can that be? What is that? We're stuck in time and space. But he's talking about categories where God is outside of time and space. It's just momentary. While I'm there talking about Paul's, awareness in full capacity of understanding persecution understanding ridicule understanding physically being struck down and yet fully aware he gives it another paradox but it's a paradox with a solution and an answer in verse 10. we always carry around in our bodies the death of jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. So every day we carry along the death of Christ. We're not stuck with that. We also carry with us the life of Jesus to actually reflect Him to other people. So how we go through crises, how we go through problems and challenges or bad news from a doctor where... The diagnosis is not good, whether it's cancer 1 or cancer, it's got a number 4. No matter what it is, we carry death around. It's just not our death, it's the death of Christ for a purpose that we reflect Him. How we go through those challenges, we reflect Him. He's given us competence, He's given us confidence, He's given us boldness to embrace all that in light of eternity What's going on right now is actually accomplishing something much greater. In fact, the way he talks about it, it far outweighs anything we're doing presently. By far. It's such a counterbalance. It, it's like God's glory is on the scale, and our problems are not minutiae, they're not insignificant. Oh, no, they're important. But they're light in comparison. By far. These are heavenly perspectives that, by faith, we grasp the unseen ways of God to live in the present. I want to unpack the fifth paradox that Paul has for us in verse 18, where he talks about fixing our eyes, fixing our eyes on things that are not seen, but fixing our eyes on what is unseen. Where is that? Where is it? The word there for fixing our eyes is scope. It's the word we get scope from. Using a scope and you, you, you see things. And oftentimes we want to take God and put him under a microscope where we take small particles and make them look really large. And the, the one that we're talking about, scopao, is this idea of looking through a telescope, something that's magnificently large, much greater than the Milky Way. All the universe is out there. We have a telescope that sees all these big, aspects of creation and brings them closer so we can actually see bits and parts and see it in part, but we can actually see. So we fix our eyes on those aspects that are largely unseen, but we know are true because God's word has declared it so. Fixing our gaze. So my third point and final point is this. Robust faith gazes on God's eternal glory for embracing a new future. As we gaze and just look at it and take it in and enjoy all the beauty, all His loveliness that He's declared and He's shown us, it's transformative. It, impo- it puts us in a place of readiness to embrace a new future instead of being stuck in our old future or our old past. It raises a question. Scope-oh, fixing our eyes. How do we do this? Uh, Are we just talking some kind of mystical type stuff? So let me just give us a few glimpses of how Scripture unpacked this experience of knowing the unseen of God. Colossians 1 is a great picture. Colossians 1.15, it talks about Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is a historical person, physically touched, a historical person, yet he's the image of the invisible God. God's invisible. This one's corporal. This one's incorporeal. This one's spiritual. This one's physical. Yet, in his glorified body, he becomes much more than just a physical body. But God is incorporeal. We can't grasp him in his totality. He's the creator of heavens and earth. I see the earth. The heavens, where are the heavens? Are they up? Are they down? Are they over there? How far away are they? It declares Christ created the heavens and the earth. So when we're on the earth and we love the earth, there's something much more greater, heaven. Now when he create heaven, he made spiritual realities and physical realities, principalities, rulers, powers, authorities. He opens up this door of spiritual dimensions of angels that the real the invisible the unseen there's a really smart intelligent guy named nicodemus in John 3 he's well read he's memorized the torah He's got a great mind that fastens on the physical. He knows logic. He's a very sharp man. He's like he'd be equivalent of a lawyer. He's got a bear trap for a mind. He, he can identify where the weaknesses in people's thinking is. And yet when he meets Jesus, he comes to the end of himself. And he realizes Jesus is from heaven. He's got a category of heaven, but he knows very little about it. And when he comes to Jesus with this question, Jesus cuts right to the chase and has a difference. He says, no one can actually get into the kingdom unless they're born again. Jesus uses the imagery of a child being born from a mother, given life, he had nothing to do, he contributed nothing to his own birth. It all came from his parents. He says, you must be born again, and this intelligent lawyer, religious person is trying to figure out with physical, all his physical faculties, how can I be born again? How does this work? And Jesus talks about the Spirit. You need to be born again of the Spirit of God. It's like the wind. You see the wind shaking the trees, and everybody says, it's real. It's, it's real. It's, the leaves are moving. The limbs are moving. You don't deny wind, but can you grasp the wind? And Paul, or Jesus opens up this category of spiritual reality of being born again. Another place that Paul will talk about gives us a little bit of a uh, better understanding. In Ephesians 1, he'll talk about, may the eyes, eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you understand the hope to which we are called to, to know all the riches that God's called us to and to know the power of his resurrection working in and through us. We need the eyes of our heart to grasp onto that. That's what faith is about. Faith is, is, is not a religion. Faith is an orientation where we accept or orientate our life around realities, whether seen and unseen, whether in time or outside of time, but we place faith and it impacts how we live, how we make choices. So whether we have a buoyant faith, a resilient faith, or a robust faith. It's one that orientates and takes all these realities, all these realms, all the authority of Christ, and we put it at the center of our life and impacts how we live. So that Paul can say, do not lose heart. Why? You have a deep anchor in your soul. It's full of truth. It's full of reality. It takes all the realities of all creation and pulls them together as opposed to living with one small worldview that's what I can see and touch and what I can validate. The King James uses a, a word, behold, behold. It's used almost 1,300 times in the King James. Behold, there's an idea of fixing our eyes, giving consideration, giving great focus, gazing upon. And so when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is here. It wasn't just a glance like, oh yeah, I got that one. Oh no, this one has been declared for millennia. This Messiah is going to be coming. This one who's going to redeem us from our sin. The one who's going to have a perfect sacrifice. There won't be any more need for a sacrificial system. One time and done. And so when John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Take it in. We've been waiting forever for this. He's finally on the stage of history behold, gaze upon him, take it in. And as you take it in, it becomes part of our faith story. It becomes part of our reality. Jesus is not, not hypothetical. He's not a theory. He's a historical reality. And when he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There you go. We see Jesus, and we see the reality of worshiping Jesus, worshiping God the Father, worshiping the Holy Spirit. We worship them in spirit and truth. There's our categories by faith, but it's a faith that's undeniable, a faith that's rich, a faith that serves us, and a faith that wells up in us with great joy. I love the way First Peter talks about this. He says, you haven't seen Jesus but you love him. You haven't seen Jesus now, do you? But you have inexpressible joy and in you're receiving your salvation, the salvation of your souls. You haven't seen him, but he's real. Your joy is undeniable. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, I don't know that joy I don't know that Jesus I've only read about him I understand cognitively that he's a historical person but this area of a a faith that's buoyant a faith that's a centering piece that actually impacts you it's a faith that actually opens up doors of seeing realms and realities beyond the present one that's full of promises where God is leading us one is giving us great competency and confidence that's outside of ourselves Oh, my goodness. It's not a hope so. It's a hope that's concrete. Hope in Scripture is this, not a want to, but it's a reality of guaranteed beddedness, bedded on the source of God. So it's not someone's ideas, someone's concepts. It's not something we conjured up for ourselves that I hope this works out in the end. Oh, no. A robust faith grasps gazes upon the realities, both the seen and unseen, and the unseen surpasses the seen by far in time, in space, and it's glorious. Not glorious just to be enjoyed, but glory that is experienced and pressed into us by His Spirit in gratefulness. I like the way John Calvin talks about this. He mentions it this way. A moment is long if we look at things around us, but once we raise our mind to heaven, a thousand years is like a moment. There's a perspective, a perspective. Let me close. As a people of God, how do we keep living out this faith? How do we make it fresh? How do we grow stronger? In our faith, to make it robust. Worship, worship is one of our core values. We just don't come here and go through routines and wrote songs that we know and memorize and we feel good about. Oh no, we come here to worship. We come here to exalt Jesus. We worship Him in spirit and truth. Why it makes a difference in our own souls and our own lives, but it actually contributes to growing us, growing this body, and impacting the future. It's a spiritual realm, worship. Our quiet times, we come here, we open up God's Word, and I don't think too many of us miss a meal. Not too many, especially coming out of Thanksgiving. We don't miss a meal, and yet Jesus says, we don't just live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, God's Word. We need it for our soul. He designed us as soul people, physical people. In the same way we need food to survive, we need God's Word to thrive and grow. In that space of growing in God's Word and having a relationship with Him through Christ Jesus, We continue to build. Yeah, we grow in the word, but we talk to him. We're people of prayer. And so in chapter 6 of Matthew, we'll talk about when you go into your room and talk to your heavenly father who is unseen, there's the category. He's spiritual. But we're talking, having this conversation with a real being, but he's all authoritative. He's the one who leads us and guides us. He's the one who saved us. So we're a growing community. We're growing in Christ but we're also a sharing community. One of the realities is that this experience that we've had, this inexpressible joy we have in Jesus, we, it's uncontagious. We want to share it with people. And so Paul says in verse 13 of our chapter we're studying, he says, it is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore we speak. We speak about God's glories. We speak about his realm. We speak about his sovereignty. We speak about his salvation to people around us, whether they're saved or unsaved, but we will speak. Why do we believe? It overflows out of our heart. It's a reality. It's undeniable. And so as a body of believers, we want to imitate, we want to reflect Christ. We want to follow hard after the ancients who pleased God. Oh, they believe He existed. They also believe that He was the rewarder of the one who rewards those who seek Him earnestly, seeking that eternal, seeking that glory, seeking His loveliness, seeking His fullness. And as we do, we enjoy Him, and He gets all the praise and honor. lord and father thank you for these moments together just unpack your word thank you for your spirit who opens up categories and lord we just pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened in such a way that we would see you in greater fullness oh we know you in part but we want to see you in your fullness there's a day when you will step onto the stage of history we will see you in all your fullness but between now and then lord help us to grow give us these glimpses whether through creation or through your word, by your spirit, open up our hearts. Give us eyes to see the wonders of your glory. And so, Lord, while we long for so much, you alone are the one who satisfies. So thank you for these moments. Thank you for these perspectives that you've given us this morning. And we give you all praise and honor. In Jesus' precious name, amen.